Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Asking for Myself, the podcast where I ask all the questions you're too afraid to. Today, we're talking about another big O. Yep, you guessed it, oral sex. Refinery29 surveyed nearly 4,000 women and half of the respondents had concerns about the appearance of their vulva. This discomfort and self-consciousness can cause many people with vulvas to be uncomfortable receiving oral sex. I wanted to dig into this, so of course, I brought in the experts. Today, I am joined by certified sex therapist, podcast host, and creator of the expansive group, Casey Tanner. Casey specializes in gender and sexual diversity and partners with individuals, relationships, and institutions to expand limited mindsets, foster courageous behavior, and empower meaningful change around gender and sexuality. I am also joined by world-renowned sexologist, educator, and consultant, Goody Howard. Goody teaches sexual skill workshops, offers sex-positive professional development opportunities, and creates dope, sex-centered t-shirts. She is determined to normalize sex-positive conversations as a way to ease stigma and improve sexual responsibility. So, without further ado, let's talk taboo. Okay, so I guess you both just want to start out with introducing yourselves and um, your work. So I'm Casey Tanner. I am a sex therapist that focuses on working with the LGBTQ community with an even further niche in working with gender expansive and transgender folks. And I also do some consulting with businesses who are ready to embrace the, the more expansive conceptualization of gender and sexuality and the way that they operate in, in their internal values and in the way that they brand their companies. That makes me so happy. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Goody. I am, my pronouns are she, her, and I am a sexologist, educator, and consultant. So I, I have pleasure development and I have professional development. So the pleasure development is the sex toys and the sexual skill building workshops. So I teach like oral sex classes and, you know, partner on top and squirting an orgasm and all of that. Um, and then with the professional development, it is corporate training, campus training and community training that's centered around sex positive response to the human variance in the community, right? I don't say diversity and inclusion because it kind of others the the population that we're talking about. And really because there are no absolutes in nature, it's human variance. It's just how we show up, right? So I just say human variance training. And that's what I do. <laughs> Where do I sign up for that? You do it already. You just, we just, you, all you gotta do is call the human variance and you're doing it. You're good. Do you feel like more organizations are starting to be more open to those kinds of trainings and even have an understanding of the value? Yes and no. Some, some totally do. And some don't even, don't even have a conceptualization of the types of questions that they should be asking themselves about this. But I think that, you know, where, where I meet companies is typically when they're in a place where they realize, okay, we have a new generation of consumers and they do not speak the same language in regards to gender and sexuality. And we don't necessarily know how to speak their language. And in fact, their language actually kind of scares us. So I often meet organizations in a place where they're, they're kind of afraid and they have good intentions. They want to do the work right. They don't necessarily know how to get there. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of brands and companies right now are in the really early stage of development where there's a lot of anxiety about this. And I think, you know, folks like Goody and I are, are meant to come in and try to help sort of calm that anxiety while also push them forward and create new anxieties. So yes and no is my answer. 
I would say I love I love Casey's answer. I think that's very much that a lot of companies are well-intentioned and they want to get ahead of the curve. They want to make sure that they are being as um, respectful of their clients and employees, right? Internal and external customers. Although I do live in Texas. So the large majority of the companies that I deal with are just trying not to get sued. If I'm being honest, they want to make sure that they do want to be respectful, but they don't want the legal liability of being disrespectful, which I mean, however you're going to get it, however you got here is fine. You're here now, you know, (laughs) they're being proactive and like not getting canceled. Totally. And I think that actually is a very natural place for people to start changing in any capacity, in any area of life. It's, I mean, it sort of goes back to that sort of cliche uh, saying that says we change when the fear of changing is less than the fear of staying the same. And so I do think that change often comes from, from fear. And I don't think that's a bad thing that that step one comes from that, as long as they're also moving into step two, step three, to the point where those values are also internalized values, but that, that often comes much later. Cool. Okay. Well, for today's conversation, I want to get into talking about all things oral sex, sexual self-confidence, pleasure, and all of those amazing things. So for people with vulvas, society is constantly telling us that one, there's something wrong with them and two, selling us the solution. So obviously there's like fragrance pads, uh, vaginal washes, all of which are completely unnecessary and can actually lead to an infection uh, instead of like masking a a scent. So we're all still super self-conscious about smells and bumps and pubic hair. And what tips do each of you have for people with vulvas overcoming these insecurities? And why is it so important to do so? Goody, you got to go first this time. Okay, okay, okay. I look, I'm just gonna sit here until you win. Oh. <laughs> it's like if I close my eyes, they can't see me. <laughs> oh, I know. I can see that you're really good at tolerating silence. Yeah, I'm not. I just don't get a lot of it. There are a lot of kids here. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so this is premium right now. Um, I think the biggest thing about even getting around that is I tell people all the time to just question your first thought about it. You know, your your gut reaction is not necessarily your reaction. It's the traditional reaction. It's the socialized reaction. And so even with your body hair or the way you smell or anything like that, do you really feel a way or have you been taught that you should feel a way? Um, Tradition is peer pressure from dead people, right? So just because it's always (laughs) traditionally been that way doesn't mean it's accurate or should be perpetuated. Um, So if you think about, you know, your body hair, If you want to shave it all off and that's how you feel confident, that's fine. But it's because you feel confident that way, not because you've always been, you know, trained that this is what your body's supposed to look like, et cetera. So the first thing I tell everybody is just second guess why you feel that way and kind of check yourself, because usually it's not how we really feel about it. It's just because it's always been that way. And it's hard to separate even like, how do I know? If I do naturally feel this way, or if it's just been decades of being told that I feel this way, so how do I know the difference? 
Correct. And the evolution and change in decision or the change in stance or the change in value that comes with that questioning, you are so much more secure in your why instead of it's just always been this way. So if someone has the audacity and boldness to ask you a question about the, the value shift, you're so, you're so grounded in that shift and why you made that choice that you can answer those questions. And even being able to do that adds to your confidence in that choice. Mm, I love that so much. I love that you say it's from dead people because that's just so, so accurate. And it's often dead people that, that don't look like you, don't identify the way that you do, aren't even close to as cool as you. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think one thing that was instrumental for me is the normalization of the different things that you named, whether it's smells, body hair, uh, ingrown hairs. Uh, there's an Instagram account called the Vulva Gallery that has been really instrumental in normalizing that for me. It's just literally illustrations of vulvas based off of real pictures that people send in of real bodies and uh, an incredibly diverse range. And for me, that, that was the first moment that I saw a vulva that actually looked like mine. And I'm a white person, so it's a lot easier for me to find vulvas that look like mine than for a lot of people, black and brown people especially. But to, to see, you know, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm finally mirrored in a photo and it's not a photo in, in a, you know, an, an awful textbook. That was so huge for me. And I, I'm even come to sort of love those parts of my vulva. Like I, I think too, you know, the smell, for example, I think there's because we've so stigmatized the smell of vulvas that we haven't given ourselves permission to actually like it. Like maybe we were, maybe to Goody's point, maybe if we really checked in with ourselves, we may not only be neutral about it, we may actually like it. We may actually enjoy it. We may like our own. We may, may like those of other people. So making room for that. And then I think to knowing where the narratives about, uh, about all of that comes from, I think there's so much focus on this sort of like virgin pussy, like the virgin vulva that's never been touched. It's super tight. It's clean. It's, you know, the, there isn't the wear and tear of sh having shaved or waxed for many years. And when we really think about pedestalizing that, we realize just like how fucked up that is, that we are pedestalizing essentially what is what is a, a children's body, right? Like not the body of an actual person with lived experiences. And when we put that lens on it, at least for me, it, it makes it feel uh, a lot less interesting to engage in that kind of judgment. That's a great reframe. Cause then you're like, uh, mm, no, <laughs> it makes you feel like you're the one, like everyone else is looking at like, ah, and you're like looking around like, are y'all, y'all serious? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Y'all, y'all see what I'm seeing? Like, this right. what we're doing? Oh, okay. You know? Mm -hmm. So I have a follow-up question about that. In relationships with two people who have a vulva, do you think these insecurities are heightened because both parties have the same conditioning? Or do you think they're reduced because there's more compassion and shared understanding and, you know, having a similar body? And is there more comparison potentially? In my work, I see body shame being less in communities wherein people with vulvas are dating people with vulvas, less shame in regards to what their vulvas look like. There is, there is sometimes comparison around body size. That is something that I do here. But in terms of periods, smells, shaving or waxing, I feel like there is more body acceptance and body positivity 
generally speaking in those relationships. Yeah, I, I would say generally, yeah, but you still, the the innocuous nature of socialization is that you don't even realize how deep your socialization goes until somebody else points out to you how deep your shit is, right? So in some in some dynamics, I would even feel like, you know how there's there's usually like a an aha moment, right? So just because you have a vulva doesn't mean that you have not internalized all of these negative messages about your body. And so even as a, as a vulva loving person, you still don't necessarily, ha- you still may not have necessarily outgrown that part of it. And so I think seeing that happen in a, inside a relationship, I've seen it happen in a, in a relationship where one partner was just like staunchly, you know, had eaten all, drinking all of the Kool-Aid, right? And then the other one was like, girl, for real? You know, <laughs> and then so there was like this awakening that she kind of saw. So even then it's a, it, it grows to be something, you know, of appreciation for your own body. But we don't get to see, like Casey said, seeing yourself, even like, and I love the Vulva Gallery, um, so I, I decided two years ago that November was going to be called Volvember. I just decided that that's what we were going to do. And so, like, so I, all things Volvo all month long and the Volvo gallery was the first time I saw a cartoon type, you know, like a, an art, an artist rendering of a Volvo that had like the little fat over the top. Never seen that anywhere because you don't see, you know what I'm saying? Aside from... The, the the seeing different skin tones you this it was all the same body so I was like okay vulva gallery you know so it's 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 so many different layers of you know all, like I said human variance it shows up so many different ways so even with two people with vulvas in a relationship they may not have ever seen a vulva like the one their partner has and are like oh shit what is what's happening you know what I'm saying? And so there's still a layer of exploration and discovery in that regard, uh, depending on the bodies of the people. It makes me think of just even in everyday life when there's many cases where I feel like women will be almost more so shaming another woman or more so critical of body type or like what if she's wearing makeup, what kind of clothes she's wearing because we're really projecting our own internalized insecurities and all of the pressures of society. And that when we see someone else who's got something that maybe we're actually jealous of, we're kind of shaming it or we're not embracing it. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. Man, we, we internalize those, those misogynistic messages and all of that. And a lot of times uh, women are worse on other women than men are. And then you have the concept of the male gaze and where all that comes from. And then how, how performative you have to be in your femininity to be acceptable, to be, to be listened to, to be valued and all of that. And you may see somebody that you perceive them as more valuable or, or other, you, you perceive them. It's not even anything that they're doing, but because you've been again, socialized that, you know, this is what, acceptable femininity looks like this this is the kind of woman that's in the boardroom or this is the kind of woman that whatever then you want to say oh well you know I would never wear that or I can't believe she you know what I'm saying and it's just like did that did you get taller by standing on her you you didn't did you oh okay (laughs) you know what I'm saying like you have to and and then being that friend that's like no girl we're not gonna do that (laughs) you know it has to start somewhere in, in, in your in your friendships, your partnerships, you know, all of that. Yeah. 
you know, so. Okay. So in her book, Girls and Sex, Peggy Orenstein shares how the young women she interviewed who were 15 to 20 were comfortable performing oral sex on their male partners. It was almost an expectation, but there was a complete lack of reciprocity. So what would each of you attribute to the oral sex gap? Obviously, we've already touched on some. And the differences in the perception of oral sex as it relates to both gender and sexual identity. So in other words, like why are blowjobs more normalized than going down on someone? Or uh, Also, what do you call sex on a, oral sex on a vulva? Like cunnilingus, I know, is a term, but do people really use it? I don't know. <laughs> Eating someone out, going down on them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I say kiss the, kiss the pussy. Kiss the pussy. I say kiss it, taste it. Eating has always felt violent to me. I see like a knife and fork kind of, you know what I'm saying? I've never been a fan of that. <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't, you don't want to do that. Let's not. But I, and like, so my, my, I teach, I teach um, oral sex on a vulva and I call the class lip service. You know, because I, I didn't want to be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like I like the implied, you know what I'm saying? It's implied, understood kind of thing. Um, but oral sex on a penis, I mean, it's an Audi, not an any, right? And so it's a whole different, there are not as many juices involved. It's not, you know, it's, uh, you know, vulvas are typically softer, even though you have the clitoral erection, but you still have the softness of the vulva, you know, the juices and things like that. And I think, again, the socialization around the smell, you don't have... We just now got an industry directed at ball wash and manscaping, right? That's fairly a fairly new industry, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. oh, it's a whole, you get a whole pack. It's like a ball wash, a special Ooh. trimmer. Um, it's like the, a ball deodorant. Oh yeah, it's a whole whole thing. But again, y'all have never seen those products. But the, the the people with dicks have seen all the Summer's Eve products and right. all the, right. you know what I'm saying? It's a lot more prevalent. And I think they've internalized it as well. And so when you internalize it and your partner has internalized it, then you think, okay, well, it's okay for me not to be, you know, for the oral sex not to be reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I'm saying? You kind of think you just buy in and they've bought in because they've seen the commercials too. They've seen all the crazy, you know, the the little trimmer commercial with the little bushes. And although I thought that was very clever the way they did that one, but I mean, like, you know, like the washes, they see it too. And oral sex on a vulva is much more involved. Yeah. You know, I also think that, that people still don't know what the clitoris is. They don't know what it is. They don't know how powerful it is. They don't know what, what it can do. And we still are buying into the myth that we're supposed to be able to orgasm for penetration. So I think they're actually, you know, I think that they're actually some well-meaning people with penises who think that they're really pleasuring their partners by offering them penetrative sex. And, and a lot of people with vulvas who don't even know what to ask for or that they are missing out. I think that that is, you know, side by side with the myth that people with vulvas like sex less than people with penises, which is absolutely not true. But I think the myth that we like sex less sort of lends itself to we spend more time on people with penises than they spend on us. So I think in order to shift that gap, it's going to be a lot of education about the clitoris, education that sex drive is non-binary. It is not, you know, different based on your gender. I think those would be a good place to start. And I think, you know, sending everybody to, to Goody's lip service class. I mean, I think, I think that should be available worldwide. <laughs> 
it, you, it is. You can buy the replay on the website. And it is. So I don't, you don't even have to wait for me to do it. Usually, last year, I was just doing them over and over again. And I was like, let me record this and, and just let people buy it because I'm tired. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> but yeah, and even with like, um, when I teach like the blowjob class, right? The, there are lots of different parts of the penis and lots of different orgasm access points in the penis, et cetera. But the global narrative around pleasure is shaped like a dick. And that's why no one bats an eyelash when a woman is not getting her pussy kissed because that's just, you know, what we deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 16 different kinds of erectile difficulty drugs on the market, but there's only one for a vulva. Because we just get, you know, we just accept certain things around our pleasure and sexual activity and sexual ability and we just let it rock yep and so because we're not as vocal right it doesn't seem like a priority therefore it doesn't get any attention and i'm I'm loving the shift in trajectory of the generation i'm in and the one behind me because they are like we're not having this anymore we you know again peer pressure from dead people that that's that's not that doesn't work here Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and so I'm excited to see that because hopefully that gap will close. Agreed. Kind of along those lines, why do you think, especially like with younger people and maybe people who are like saving themselves for marriage, why do you think oral sex is oftentimes not really considered sex? Like it doesn't count. <laughs> oh my gosh, don't get me started on this. I mean, Oral sex is, we still put it in the category of foreplay and we still delineate foreplay, everything that happens before real sex and sex, which we only define as penetrative sex. I mean, what, uh, this is my bias, but I think one of the reasons is because we're so homophobic. If we were to recognize oral sex and anal sex as real sex, then we'd have to validate that queer people are having real sex. So that's, that's, I think, one reason why there's hesitancy to include that as legitimate sex. I think also the, you know, the, the medical model of sex, which really is rooted in the, in the evolutionary model of sex, which is really rooted in the idea that sex is only serving a biological function, which is reproduction. And oral sex doesn't lead to reproduction. Anal sex doesn't lead to reproduction. So I think sometimes that, that's where we draw the line. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is the is the reproductive part, because I've had some super, super again, I live in Texas and that's the buckle of the Bible belt. So I've had like super religious folks of like, you know, any hole but the holy hole. Right. And so that translates to any any type of sex or pleasure that lead that does not lead to reproduction is OK. And even insertive sex, because cisgender women have oral sex, cisgender women have anal sex. And so. I think that the for me in my mind the line of reproduction is what is where people feel like it's not real versus you know that's not sex because sex leads to babies and things you know and so it's just like my my response is that to so well what if one of the partners is infertile and they're having insertive sex is it not real sex because somebody can't get pregnant is that what we're is that the line that we're going to draw right and so when when people make that kind of connection in their head then it's it's a little different but I do think it's that that medical line or that you know that biological line of well you can't have kids this way so this doesn't count yeah I think that I definitely think that that has a lot to do I think all of it has a lot to do with it um and I remember definitely kind of 
thinking the same way because I was raised super religious. I have some questions on that later, but we'll see if we get to it. Do you ever want the sensations of oral sex, but without the skin-to-skin contact? Or hey, maybe you just want to spice things up with some latex. We get it. There are many ways to experience pleasure, and that's exactly why laurels were created. Laurels are single-use natural latex panties designed to be worn during oral sex and rimming. Laurels are ultra-thin, so you feel every little thing. Plus, the super stretchy latex is easy on your partner's tongue and allows for tongue and finger penetration even simultaneously. Did you just get turned on a little, or was that just me? Laurels come in two styles, shorty for fuller coverage or bikini if you want to bear a little more. What are you waiting for? If you're asking for yourself, aka listening to this podcast right now, Laurels is giving you 15% off your first purchase today at mylaurels.com. That's www.mylaurels.com using code TABOO. Yes, 15% off. Head to mylaurels.com and use code T-A-B-U on your first purchase. Get your oral on. Okay, so Casey, I was listening to your conversation on the She podcast, and you said, we can't have a healthy relationship with other people unless we have a healthy relationship, sexual relationship with ourselves. So can you talk a little bit more about this and what a healthy sexual relationship with oneself looks like? It's so interesting that I said that. I want to, I want to amend that. (laughs) I agree with it to some extent. I also lately have been really trying to hold space for asexual folks who have incredible, amazing relationships without sexual, without sexuality being a part of that. So that would be my addendum to what I said before. But look, I think that we ex- somehow expect our partners to know what to do to our bodies when we don't even know what to do to our bodies. And I think that's what I was really speaking to is how are we supposed to teach and communicate and direct if if we actually don't even know what, what's possible and what we want? I mean, I think especially people with vulvas, we avoid our genitals like the plague. I mean, we avoid looking at them. We avoid touching them. We avoid smelling them. And then we go into our, our partnered relationships and expect ourselves to be comfortable with someone spending a lot of time with our genitals, why would we be comfortable with that when everything that we've avoided is telling us that, you know, if we're avoiding it, other people should avoid it, essentially. So I think that the best way to overcome that is through stopping the avoidance in your own relationship with your own sexuality. Very true. I feel the exact same way. I I tell people all the time that your orgasm is your responsibility. And oftentimes the answer is masturbation, self-love, self-pleasure, however you want to phrase it, because you connect to your body in a different way, right? It's a very, we connect to our bodies in a very utilitarian kind of way. It gets us from A to B, the tummy growls, we feed it, you know, things like that, right? But when you connect to yourself on a level of self-pleasure, you understand your pleasure, then you can communicate it to your partner a little better. It doesn't have to be verbal communication. It could be showing, it could be what have you, but your orgasm is your responsibility in the respect that it's your body. It's your pleasure. And I'd even go as far to say as it makes you a better lover when you're connected to your pleasure, because then you can communicate it to your partner and you're not just waiting on the orgasm, right? So I have a, um, I talk about a road trip as orgasm, right? So we're going to orgasm land, right? So you get in the car, it's like, yeah, we're going to orgasm, orgasm land. You get in and you just, yeah, the whole time orgasm you just focused on 
where you're going. And so you're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right. But then you get in the car and you're like, yeah, we're going to orgasm land. But I got these snacks. We got these tunes pumping. We cracking jokes. So you have a great time in the journey to orgasm land. You enjoy all of the things that lead up to getting to orgasm land. Right. So you're enjoying the pleasure in the journey and enjoying the you're more connected to the pleasure and you're more connected to the journey if you understand what that journey looks like for yourself. Right. There are more than 18 different kinds of orgasms and uh, you're missing all other all the rest of them trying to get to this one. You know what I'm saying? You're playing yourself. And so the self-pleasure part of it, you learn to connect to your body. You learn to connect to what pleasure feels like for you. And then you can communicate that to your partners. And I think that would help close the orgasm gap. I think that would help close the oral sex gap. All of the gaps, I think would be a little bit closer, a little bit more closed if we just kind of took the taboo and the stigma off of self-pleasure and not that, oh, if I'm if I'm in a relationship, I don't have to, you know, I got somebody or, you know, thinking that masturbation can't exist in a healthy relationship or all these things, right? Because all those different, the 18 plus different kinds of orgasms, you're missing them, you know, all of them. And your nipples are connected to the same part of your brain as your genitals. Like you're missing, you're missing all of that, right? Because you're just so focused on this one kind of orgasm, which is a, a blended one and a myth to most people with vulvas in the first place. And I think that can even come up with well, one. I was thinking about how, particularly for people with a vulva, we're kind of not even given permission to masturbate. You know, obviously it's because we feel like we need permission. Boy, people with dicks are not asking to masturbate. No, they're not. But I think when they're like 13 in their in their bedroom and the door is closed, it's kind of like, oh, okay, like we know what, you know, is going on in there. But there, there would be no kind of thought on that for, you know, women. And I think that another thing I was thinking about as you're talking about masturbation and all these different kinds of orgasms is that I also think a lot of us get used to masturbating the same way. Um, and like kind of having a routine around that. So maybe there's also opportunities there for exploring uh, in a different way. Yes, all the things. I mean, and people think, you know, when we think of sex toys and, and pleasure accessories, <clears throat> we think of big penis-shaped vibrators. There's so much stuff that doesn't even go inside the body. There's so much stuff that doesn't even vibrate. We talk about, I say sensuality and sexuality, right? Sensuality to me is non-sexual pleasure through all five of the senses. So if you live sensually and you experience non-sexual pleasure, when it's time to get sexual, you'll experience sex through all five of the senses. So you're adding layers to the pleasure. And so in the same thing with self-pleasure, right? So you can change the texture or the temperature or the pressure, or maybe it doesn't vibrate or you change materials or change angles, change positions, masturbate somewhere different in your house. All of those things, right? It, it's it's a process. All of it is a process. And processes are not necessarily, they don't have to be linear. Yep. Gotta switch it up. Uh, totally. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of a an expansion of your metaphor, Goody, because more and more I'm I'm teaching and I'm hearing, can we just stop focusing on orgasms altogether sometimes? Can we just have sex where that actually isn't the goal, right? Can we have a different destination besides orgasm land? And I think in exploring that, 
And I mean, there's so much pressure to, to get to the orgasm land as soon as humanly possible. And then so much self-consciousness if you're somebody that takes a while to get there. Um, so to, to Goody's point, if we enjoy the journey, the pressure to get there fast is lowered. And if we maybe give ourselves a different goal, right? If our goal is, is connection or our goal is endorphins, or if we redefine our goal to be something that we actually have more control of, since many people don't actually feel in control of whether or not they end up orgasming, I think that takes a lot of the pressure off too. Totally. Okay. So on the flip side of self-pleasure is, I guess, pleasuring someone else. And oral sex, unless you're performing 69 or some version of mutual pleasure, is about focusing on your partner and their gratification. However, I know that I definitely get super turned on by my partner's pleasure, and that can definitely get me in the mood. So, Goody, you've said if you can't, if you haven't reached orgasm from performing oral sex, your life is incomplete. So can you tell us about the concept of compersion, what even that is, and how it relates to sexual pleasure? Okay, so I absolutely mean it. I stand by it. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you're having oral sex, because everybody doesn't you know, have sex the same ways, but if you're having oral sex, yeah, your life is incomplete if you have not reached orgasm from performing oral sex. And so compersion is you know, finding joy and pleasure in seeing your partner experience pleasure. And so sometimes you're so connected to your partner that, you know, being instrumental in their pleasure in that way arouses you and possibly arouses you to the point of orgasm. Whereas if it's not that case, you know, you feel like, oh man, I got to do this. Let me go on and do this. You know what I'm saying? It's not that you have to get, you know, you don't have to suck that dick. You get to suck that dick, right? You have to reframe. But there are also, there's a way to sort of create the, uh, perception of compersion. So when I teach my oral sex workshops, we talk about how to use to- how to use toys in your performance on yourself and on your partner. And so what happens is if you're using sex toys to stimulate your genitals or you're just stimulating your genitals while you are performing oral sex on your partner, it starts to create this sort of Pavlovian response kind of operant conditioning to where you start to equate giving pleasure with your own pleasure. And then you start to have that same reaction. And so you may get to a point where you're not even needing to stimulate your genitals while performing oral sex, but it's definitely, you know, it adds the layers to the pleasure as it were. But, and I love the fact that I, so I say science and ho shit all the time, right? That's the name of the book that I will one day finish. Uh, but, um, but science and ho shit is if you come to a blowjob class or you come to a pussy in class and you're hearing Pavlovian response and operant conditioning because it's, it's science, right? And you have to, sort of that and a lot of times we think of performing oral sex as a chore or like something that we have to do to get to what the main event right instead of savoring and enjoying it and it's also part of that sensuality piece you're not thinking about you know putting your mouth on a vulva you're thinking about the softness of the lips on the softness of your lips or the firmness of the clitoris on the wetness of the tongue and like all of these types of things and so the way your partner holds their breath in anticipation or releases a moan or the way their body tenses up, like you're enjoying all of the different sensual engagements of the performance. And so that's when I, so when I say you have, if you haven't reached orgasm for performing oral sex, that's what I'm saying. I don't think people experience it in a layered, uh, it's not layered for a lot of people. And my courses are specifically <clears throat> centered on teaching you how to add your own layers. I love that. On that topic of like, you mentioned how obviously if you don't want to have oral sex, you don't have to. And some people don't like it and some people don't want to do it. 
given that there's also the aspect that's layered in for people who have been almost conditioned to be self-conscious about receiving oral sex and to feel shame or to feel like it's taking too long or to just feel all of these insecurities around it. How would you recommend couples address that or just partners address that when like, what's the difference kind of like you were mentioning earlier, Goody about, is this really something I don't like, or is this something that I've been taught not to like? How would you recommend that conversation goes when maybe one partner is like, I don't want to do it. It's gross. Or maybe one partner is like, I don't want you to do it. It's gross. But maybe it's not, you know, maybe that's, maybe that is how they feel. Maybe it's not how they feel. How can people think about that? Mm -hmm. I think it's a conversation that has to happen with clothes on. (laughs) You know, that's not, you don't have that talk when everybody is right in the bit, you know, right in the middle of it. Um, But you do kind of, you know, well, babe, why do you feel like that? Like, what does someone like, do you really feel that way? How do you move through the world feeling this way about your body? Who, where did you get this from? You know what I'm saying? What, what makes you feel that, that, that way? And what makes you feel that I feel that way? You know, I love you. I'm here with you. I want to be with you. You're sexy as fuck. Let's do this. But you're like, why do you not want me to, you know, help connect to this pleasure with you? Right. I would think that that's, I'm sure there's probably even a better way to say that, but that's what I would think, you know, that conversation may look like I've had, I've, I've told couples to maybe try to like take a sexy shower together. I say, I say take shadow showers all the time in a completely black room, you know, no candles, no music, no nothing, just you in the water. And and you kind of feel your way around because it's a little more sensual. It's more nurturing. You're caring for your body and your skin and you have to touch yourself differently to see if there's still soap there or what have you. And if you do that together, and if your partner feels self-conscious about the way their body smells, then you're there, you know, you're there right then, that fresh out of the shower, you're not going to be as self-conscious. Um, the way their body looks, you're in the dark. So you're just touching and feeling each other, right? And so I think it kind of would ease that anxiety in a way, but you still have to have a conversation before you even get to that point. Because even if you kind of relieve the anxiety in these very purposeful ways, if they still feel like that and you haven't talked about it beforehand, they're still going to feel that way about their bodies. And so it's definitely a, an upfront conversation that you have to have. Yeah, I agree. And I've seen, especially in some of the relationship and couples therapy that I do, it'd be so powerful for one member of the couple to name. This is, these are the things that are going through my head when you're going down on me. I'm, I'm worried I'm taking too long. I'm worried you're thinking about, how I smell, what my hair looks like, et cetera. And checking those, checking those thoughts out with the partner or the partners and giving them an opportunity to actually speak to those exact fears, right? Like, are you think really asking, like, are you thinking that it's taking too long? I, I want to know. And the partner being able to say, no, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy. I'm more than happy to be down there for as long as it takes. Or maybe the answer is, you know, sometimes when we have a lot going on in a day, Sometimes like it, it does feel like a long time when it's taking 30, 40 minutes and we can have those conversations. We don't actually have to be so scared of the answer being, yeah, so, you know, sometimes I am into it and sometimes I'm not into it. Or sometimes it does feel like it's taking too long. That doesn't have to mean anything about us. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. So I think too, not putting the pressure, not, not having the pressure to, as the one giving, be enjoying it a hundred percent of the time, but, but knowing when do I enjoy it? When, when don't I, and how can we have a collaborative conversation to sort of 
promote, promote the most, you know, successful experiences together. I don't think it has to be scary if we have a partner that doesn't like doing something to us either. I think we can actually just talk that out. Yeah, I know that I think that I've definitely had a lot of friends go through or a few friends who have gone through the experience of having a partner that doesn't want to perform oral sex. And kind of like, I think that can contribute to internalizing some shame, but also you don't want to, you know, make them do anything they don't want to do. So it's like a tricky area to navigate. Like, do you think that that's about compatibility ultimately, or is it just like having these conversations? I I was going to say something else about what you said, you know, the partner that doesn't want to perform. If it's a, if it's a partner that doesn't want to perform oral sex on a vulva, we just eat that and we internalize that. But if it's a partner that's not getting their dick sucked, if you're not sucking it, someone's sucking it. Yeah, if you have a if you have a partner with a penis and you're not sucking their dick, then you feel like if I'm not doing it, I gotta do it. Cause if if I don't do it, someone else is gonna do it. Whereas your partner may not be like, well, I gotta eat that pussy because if I don't, someone else will. That 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 pressure, that equivalent, that thought process does not exist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If if people felt like if I don't eat her pussy, someone else will they would feel the same pressure that, you know, a lot of people that date people with penises feel. We're talking about unequal pressure. So on that note, Casey, you have a post on your Instagram that asks, are you a giver or are you uncomfortable receiving pleasure? So you said that. Um, And obviously this directly relates to what we're talking about today, but can you talk about how just the concept of being a giver and not comfortable with receiving, even people not comfortable receiving compliments or someone does something for them and they're uncomfortable. How does this show up not only in sexual context, but just in our everyday lives of, you know, discomfort around receiving pleasure? Mm -hmm. I think so many of us have these sexual identities that, that we, we, we no longer understand them as choices. We start to understand them as who we are. So whether that's, um, you know, bottoming or, um, or giving, I think we can sometimes, sometimes sort of take on the identity of, of being a giver without actually interrogating where that's coming from. I do believe there are people out there who just really love giving and get a lot of pleasure from that. I believe that most people though, who say they're givers, there's, I would sort of wonder if there's something going on there in regards to their own comfort with their own pleasure and their own comfort with receiving, especially when people with vulvas tell me, well, I'm just a giver. I like to interrogate that because it's so in line with with all the other ways that we're socialized to be givers. So, so yeah, I mean, I just think I just think interrogating anything is is a good thing as it relates to sex. Um, I feel like I only answered half your question. Did I miss something there? Who knows? It's a long question, but I think okay. <laughs> the main point. <laughs> Uh, I even wrote here, I was like, these questions, some of these are so long. Just about giving and taking. I have a book actually about giving and taking, even in a business context. And I know that I'm someone who, like, my mom is very much of a giver. She's always doing everything for everybody else, a people pleaser. And I feel like I've inherited a lot of that. And I do genuinely love doing things for people, but I sometimes feel resentful because. There are times when it's like, I want to give, I want to give. But then if you never feel the reciprocation or you never feel appreciated, not that you're looking for, you know, accolades, but you start to be like, wait a minute, why am I always the one doing all the giving? So I was just curious about people who kind of have 
being a giver as their identity and how how that can show up in sex and just in life. We compartmentalize our sex lives as if, if they're this this part of our lives that is so separate from every other part of our life. But in reality, when I do sex therapy with people, this much of it is about sex. And this much of it is about everything else going on in their lives that is showing up in the bedroom. I think once people make that connection between the way they show up at work and the way they show up in bed or the way they show up in their parenting and the way they show up in bed, there's so much we learn from that. Yeah. It's all connected. And I think that's what people don't realize. I think even people have a misconception about what, uh, even sex education, you know, it's so much, there's the sex, the mechanics about it, but then there's, and the sexual health, but then there's so much just about communication, relationships, identity, just like body image, how you navigate in the world, boundaries. Boundaries, interpersonal communication. Like people think sex ed and they just think, most people think sex education is for teenagers, first of all. And they think that it they basically it boils down to STI and teen pregnancy prevention. Which if you starting with teenagers, you're too late. I can correlate every social ill on the planet with the lack of or presence of sex education, comprehensive sexuality education. Like school shootings would be less prevalent because if if sex ed starts in pre-K, you're talking about boundaries. You're talking about consent. You're talking about navigating negative emotions. They don't. They wouldn't. They would be able to process those feelings of rejection and disappointment and all of that. And they and so they would process it differently than shooting a school up. And then they would understand that boundaries. My boundaries end where yours begin. And so I don't have the, the right to take life and all of like all of those soft skills that come with just being a not would come with being a human on this planet, right? Coexisting with other humans. Those are the types of things that they learn in pre-K, but they don't offer it in pre-K because when they hear sex, they think, oh my God, you're teaching the babies about clits and dicks, right? And so with sex, it's so misunderstood because we don't, we just think of it as pregnancy prevention or showing these horrible pictures of, you know, the genitals that are just really, you know, at the end of their, you know, they are just really living with conditions that are chronic and, and just like, these people are not, it's given a false sense of security. So then the, the people think, okay, well, if my partner's genitals don't look like this, then they don't, they're not living with an STI and I don't have a, I don't run the risk of acquiring or whatever. So many holes, right? And that's why I love what Casey does because I am not a therapist. I am, I am a master of social worker and I could have done like the LCSW and all that stuff, but I am not a mic. I'm not a direct practice person. Um, I am very much an empath and I would not be able to not, to not, absorb other people's things but that's why I do the workshops and the macro practice because I feel like I can I can help socially you know conceptually culturally without doing the work the individual work and I think the people that do the individual work are the ones that like they make it possible for me to do the macro work that I do I think that's something that's been huge for taboo also is just like and one of the reasons I even started this is just the intersection of emotional well-being, mental health, sexuality, sex ed, like it's also connected. And I think that, like you're saying, Goody, when we're not learning those things at a very young age and it's not, it should just be conversations you're having at home, things you're learning at home and in school. And then they're just, you know, building on each other as it's age appropriate, as you, you know, evolve. That's just like math. 
sex education is just like math. You get one plus one, and then you get one times one, and then you get one divided by one. You know what I'm saying? They build on those skills. And it's a um, sex positive families. I love sex positive families so much because they have tools and resources and workbooks and workshops for parents to be the people that are teaching their children about sex positive conceptuality that they didn't even realize existed before. You know, parents want to be the main source of sexuality education for their children, but they're not prepared to do it. They're not, they don't have the background. They don't have the training. They don't have the understanding, the knowledge, what have you. And so providing those resources will shift that narrative too. And it'll empower parents to be more active and hopefully expand their, their understanding while they're expanding their children's understanding. Yeah. I've always thought one of the biggest struggles that parents face is that they still haven't done their own unlearning and they still don't know. So if the, kid comes to them with a question there's this like shutdown or just like they want you to do better than they did so then they're just kind of not even acknowledging their own which always I'm always like you were a teenager once hello there Eva Bloom here with Honey Playbox we're a pleasure products company run by a group of sex educators queer meme queens and toy connoisseurs passionate about bringing inclusive values to the adult industry We believe that exploration and education are necessary for positive experiences of sexuality and that prioritizing pleasure starts with versatile toys. We also have our very own sex toy fairy. That's me. I'm here to make your sex toy dreams come true. I listen to your wants, needs, and desires and use a little bit of magic to pick out a toy that's everything you'd ever hope for. We asked Talk Taboo fans to write to us for a personalized sex toy recommendation. So let's get into it. Today we're using some fairy magic to pick out a toy for Tori. Tori is looking for a versatile toy that stands out from others on the market. Hey Tori! Based on what you told us, it sounds like you love Honey Playbox's Seduction. The Seduction is the winner of XBiz's Sex Toy of the Year for a reason. It has a licking function with a silicone tongue, as well as vibration sensations. It has a large mouth so it works with a diverse range of bodies. Coupled with a water-based lube, it mimics oral sex. Body-safe materials are also so important when it comes to choosing a sex toy, and our seduction is made from body-safe, non-porous silicone. It's also rechargeable, so you don't need to worry about batteries. Thank you so much for your submission, Tori. Here at Honey Playbox, we've got unique and affordable toys made from body-safe materials. Plus, our team is always available to help you find the perfect toy for you. Check us out at honeyplaybox.com, and right now you can get 25% off your purchase with the coupon code TALKTABOO. You'll also get a water-based lubricant or toy cleaner as a free gift included with your order. Honey Playbox, where sexual wellness meets play. (laughs) I was reading a study, Goody, about just like the prevalence of oral sex um, for, and it was looking at different ethnicities and how oral sex shows up in different, um, for like younger girls. So it was saying that only 9% of the white girls and 29% of the Hispanic girls in the study had not had oral sex, whereas 41% of the African-American girls had not had oral sex. And then also um, there was an episode of Insecure that touched on the oral sex taboo that has historically existed in the Black community. And I was just wondering if you could touch on where this taboo comes from, if it still exists, um, and kind of like how you think about that in your work. Um, well, I, I definitely think it still exists. It's, I think it's rooted in church. Black people are churched as hell. We are the churches, churchiest, you know, and it's interesting because the way that we're churched is 
it's public church. It's not a private church, right? We do what we want when the doors are closed, but when we outside, we have to represent this ambient, pious Christianity, right? Um, and so I think that there's a level of impurity that people associate with uh, oral sex. Oh, that's for the fast girls. Oh, that's, you know, good girls don't do that. Good church women don't do that. You know, and so there is a hierarchy, right? You got the queens and you got the hoes, you know, and I'm pro queen and pro ho. And I think that we think about, oh, oh you know, g- girls, we don't do that. You know, we're not the kind of girls that have to do that. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to do that to get a man. I don't have to do that to keep a man because there's some sort of dis- debasement or some sort of self, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's something about performing oral sex that makes you less than. You don't get on your knees for no man. That's what my gra- I've heard my grandmother has told me that before. But you get on your knees for no man. Well, who am I getting on my knees for then? Jesus, the Lord, okay. <laughs> right? So, so it's just like, uh, I think that's part of it. I think that's a big part of it. And also, um, you know, studies are showing that, you know, black children are adultified when they're not allowed to be kids too. And so that kind of plays a role into wanting to preserve this element of purity or youth or innocence that performing oral sex does not go with. Right. Um, And so I think there is just a very layered reason for the existence of that specific area of um, stigma. But I'm not seeing a shift necessarily. Uh, You know, I've taught I teach Lick. I've taught Lick. That's the blowjob class. I've taught it easily 10 years and I've taught ages 18 to 84. And. I get all the time. Oh, I don't do that. I've never done that for my husband. I've never done that. I've, you know, and so in my head, I'm like, oh, someone is, but I can't tell them that. Right. And so there's a pride of, I got a man without doing that. I didn't have to do. So I think that it's misguided. Absolutely. But, you know, it's, I don't, I don't necessarily see it changing. Um, I'm 41. So my age group, we are we are the age group that gave birth to the the, the folks that's now wilding out, and so I'm excited about it. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm hoping that it's going to shift that way, but I don't see it in the in the you know the the people that are a little bit older than me. I don't see it. Hmm. And I know, and we definitely don't have, unfortunately, time to get into this. Thank you both so much. But I know Casey that you were on your path to becoming a youth pastor and went to the same college, actually as one of my best friends in, from high school. And she's told me so much about um, just even the idea about sexual identity on campus and having sign um, sort of like the community covenant. And so do you see religious sexual shame coming up in your practice still? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. All the time. Yeah. So, so Goody, what, what she's referring to is that I went to an evangelical Christian college where I had to sign a document that said I wouldn't be gay. And that was in 20, 2010, 2012, I don't know, something like that. Um, so not so long ago, I know it's bananas. Um, yeah, but you don't have to go to uh, Wheaton college to have a lot of shit around purity culture. That's ingrained. I mean, we all have it, whether we're Christians or not, we have it. It is embedded into um, into Western society. And so, I, I mean, I think one of the most common things I hear from my clients who typically are not currently identifying as Christian, um, but but at one point did or w- were raised by Christian parents, 
what they say is, Casey, rationally, I know that I know these things are not true. Um, but emotionally and in my body, it is as if they are still capital T true. How do I get, you know, my heart knowledge into my head? Um, or, or I'm sorry, the other way around. How do I get what I know rationally into, into these other parts of my body that, that have experienced religious trauma? And it is a long process. It's like recovering from any kind of trauma. It often takes years, if not more. Um, and I think one of the best ways to heal is in community with other people who learned similar things and have gotten out of that, um, that system of learning. I know the most healing conversations I have are with other people who went to similar schools or were in similar contexts who are now queer because there is something about that journey that is so specific. Um, and to hear other people narrate that and mirror that back is really powerful. Thank you both so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you and continue following your work, work with you, et cetera? For me, the best way to find me is via Instagram at Queer Sex Therapy. Um, and you can find everything else from there. Okay. I'm a... Uh... I'm a, Goody is my name, and everyone asks Goody everything, so I'm Ask Goody on everything, A-S-K-G-O-O-D-Y on all the platforms, but I violate the community standards of all social media platforms as well, so you can join the Goody Gang, which is my email list, and you can, like, the link is in the bio. My uh, website is askgoody.com, because, you know, I can't promote ads. I'll be posting stuff. Y'all probably won't see it, so... <laughs> We all violate the community standards by building a new community. We do. We do. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in. And hey, what are you going to ask for yourself this week? Head to our Instagram at askingformyself. That's with the number four. And or talk taboo to share what you've learned and what questions you have. Catch you next time.